Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. For more than 50 years, Sesame Street has brought quality educational programming to kids around the globe. In that time, the show has spread to 150 countries, and more than a thousand studies have detailed the ways that Elmo, Big Bird, and the rest of the Sesame crew have advanced learning for preschoolers. And while we may take it for granted now, Sesame Street upended the conventional ideas of kids' television. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. When Sesame Street began on PBS back in 1969, it was meant to be free and accessible to preschool kids across the country. Through those iconic puppets, kids were taught letters and numbers, languages, self-esteem, and problem-solving. In 2016, Sesame Street moved from PBS to HBO. And just this summer, almost 200 episodes of the show have been pulled from the streaming site. That's according to the New York Times. This week, as we reflect on access to educational television, we revisit our conversation about how children's television became educational. Later, we'll hear from a child psychologist who helped create shows like Blue's Clues and Bear in the Big Blue House. But first, Sonia Manzano. She's one of the most influential actors in kids' television, and you may recognize her from her role as Maria on Sesame Street. Hi, Elmo. Hey, Maria. How you doing? I'm going to play a game. Okay, but listen, I've got a lot of work to do, so if you want to play a game, make sure it's a very quiet game. Okay, okay. Huh? Elmo, I can hardly hear you. You're not talking very loud. Elmo say he play quiet loud game. When somebody say quiet, Elmo talk quiet. Quiet, very quiet. When somebody say loud, Elmo talk loud. You just say loud, so Elmo talk loud, 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 loud. Okay, okay, I get it, I get it. Quiet. Sonia played the role of Maria for more than 40 years. She's author and creator of the animated kids show Alma's Way and author of Becoming Maria. Her newest book is Coming Up Cuban, Rising Past Castro Shadow. In April, I asked Sonia about how her childhood experiences in the South Bronx shaped her as an adult. I was born in uh, New York City and raised in the South Bronx. I'm Puerto Rican. Sadly, I was raised in a household that was dominated by domestic violence. So in addition to all of the issues that my parents had coming from Puerto Rico to the mainland and dealing with the system and dealing with not speaking English and dealing with really being marginalized, because in those days we were invisible, uh, they had to deal with their own personal issues. Through all of that, I found comfort as much many children are able to do and immerse myself in the imaginings of my mind. And what I saw on television is where I found relief. 
Let's talk a bit about that and and how television became this relief for you, but also this space where you could explore ideas and explore yourself. Because for so many children, TV becomes this respite and this escape. Talk to us more about that for you growing up. Yes, I used to watch hours and hours of television. I love The Little Rascals. I love Father Knows Best. I love Leave It to Beaver and all of those shows that you can see on TV land because there was order in them. There was humor in them. They were not chaotic. And I found that comforting. However, not seeing myself reflected in any of those shows did take its toll. And I did used to wonder what I could contribute to a society that was not seeing me, that I was invisible to. Uh, Sadly, I have heard young performers, performers who were half my age, still saying the fact that they hadn't seen themselves on television made them feel that not only about being an actor, but just existing in society and having a job. So uh, when I had the opportunity to be on Sesame Street and be the role model that I needed to see myself, I jumped at the chance. I'm listening to you recount your experience and thinking about the fact that we're in 2022 and people still have that experience. I'm I'm thinking of the speech during the Oscars to hear this amazing performer say, thank you, Rita Marino, for showing me what was possible, but there was such a gap. And then you talk about the ability to be a part of something that has become so iconic and affirming to children. Do you remember when you saw your first episode of Sesame Street? So before you become a part of the company, do you remember seeing your first episode? Very, very clearly. I was uh, at the Student Union of Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh where I that, that I was attending. And I walk in and there on a black and white television set was a very young, very bald James Earl Jones reciting the alphabet in a very deliberate manner, A, B, C, while the letters flashed over his bald head. And uh, I thought it was a show that taught lip reading or something. I mean, I, I, I couldn't understand what this was about. And then they, when they cut to Susan and Gordon, this beautiful urban black married couple from a street that looked very much like a street that I might've lived on, I was stunned and I was glued because as I, it's hard for me to get this across to people nowadays, but in 1969, you never saw a person of color on television. And if you did, they weren't this cute, charming, you know, smiley couple that were Susan and Gordon. Uh, So I was like glued to the show. The show came out of the 60s. Everybody had a platform in those days. And Mexican-Americans on the West Coast demanded Latino representation. And that's how I got cast representing Puerto Ricans. And Emilio Delgado got cast uh, representing Mexican-Americans. You joined the cast in 1971. And the show had not yet become the icon that it is today. And yet it was still groundbreaking in many ways to, as you say, have these positive, affirming images of people that too often was scarce on television, pop culture in general. What was the vision when you joined in 1971? What was the vision for the show? And how did you see yourself within that vision? 
the documentary Street Gang has been released and it's get a chance. Please watch it. It's called Street Gang and it tells you a lot about the early years of the show. In it, Joan Cooney, whose brainstorm was Sesame Street, said the people who run the world can read. Therefore, these underserved children should be able to read. It was such a simple statement. And so I was intrigued by it. I wanted to become a part of it. I uh, was interested in what they were doing. There was a time when I would go to other auditions and worry that I might get another part and would have to leave the show. But I didn't want to to leave this this show that was reaching out to kids, giving them basic skills, showing them life as it existed so they could start their educations on an even uh, level with their middle class peers. To be the first is an amazing honor, an amazing opportunity, but it can also be very challenging because suddenly you are expected to represent the whole entirety of a community. And as you have pointed out, these are not monolithic communities. We use the term Latino, but there are so many experiences embedded within that. Did you feel the weight of that? Or did you feel like this is my opportunity? Let me make the most of whatever it becomes. Well, eventually, at first, I said to myself, who elected me president of Puerto Ricans? I'm just an actress here trying to make my way and deal with Big Bird. But Matt Robinson, who was the original Gordon and a writer for the show, said to me on my first few days, you're not here to be the cute Latina. You have to make sure you the Latino content is accurate. And I said, who, me? Are you kidding? But then I thought about what he said. And uh, there used to be a fruit cart on the show and it had apples, bananas and the usual stuff. And I used to think if this was a diverse neighborhood, the fruit cart would have guineos, platanos, chaltia and what you would find in the Latinx neighborhood. Well, I went to the producers and I said, I think you should put some guineos on the fruit cart. And they said, oh, what a great idea. And they did it. And I learned this. Everybody has a little bit of power. That wasn't a big deal of power but I had it a little bit and I always encourage people to assume they do have a little bit of power and exercise it the way I exercised it uh, on the fruit cart. So I'm proud to say I'm the first person to diversify your fruit cart, but uh, 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 all kidding aside, I always don't think about having a heavy load or representing the universe. I do what I think is right for me from my heart. You share that power as an actress, but you also have shared that power as a writer and as an executive producer and using that power to tell stories in their fullness and to change the environment for many people. What was that experience of not just being Maria in front of the camera, but also saying in these spaces where we can set the tone for power and for representation, I will be in those spaces? Well, I got the opportunity to do that when uh, Linda Siminski at PBS asked me to create a Latinx family show and animated series. And that, well, that part was easy. I mean, I just went from my life. I was born in the South Bronx and raised and my, I remembered my childhood there and decided to fashion Alma after myself. But the theme of the show is left up to me. And I, uh, 
I always learn from Sesame Street, look around by what's going, see what's going on with the kids around you and address those issues. I noticed that a lot of underserved kids, because they don't speak English, because they're in overcrowded classrooms, because they get tested all the time, because they can't memorize and fail those tests, were thinking they weren't smart. They were not using their brains even before they they recognize the joys of thinking. So Alma's way is simply about thinking. If Sesame Street was simply about kids who run the world can read, I say kids who run the world can think. So in every episode, there's a moment where Alma has a problem and we see the thought process through the power of animation. As I listen to you talk about the different parts of your journey, the work that you have done and continue to do, there is an explicit appeal to the humanity and worth and dignity of children. And something that I think gets overlooked that we don't treat children as people, as humans who are capable of making decisions for themselves and to honor that basic humanity. Where does that come from for you and your commitment? I, I guess I remember my own childhood and going into my mind myself and putting two and two together uh, by what I saw around me. So I always felt that I was full of ideas and notions and observations. And I think you're absolutely right. Today, too many people think kids are empty vessels that we just pour our sensibilities in and we just pour information into them. And that is not the case. They have thoughts themselves. They see the world a certain way. Our job is only to sort of direct them to something that they might not be aware of, but it's not, it's not uh, to be disrespectful to them as if they have absolutely no thoughts. You retired from Sesame Street in 2015 after spending four decades in this character's Maria, but also winning 15 Emmys. 15 Emmys is fantastic. What prompted the decision to leave in 2015? Well, I had been on the show for so long. I had been a, a teenager. I got married. I had a baby, but the baby went to high school. Uh, I think that, you know, a show like that needs new blood, new people. It started to become more Muppet heavy at that time than per people heavy as uh, things have to things have to change. And uh, I joke saying I have two jokes about my departure. One, I say 44 years was long enough for me to wait for Oscar the Grouch to propose. And number two, when you don't recognize the celebrities on the show, it's time to move on. <laughs> Culture moves on. And uh, when I uh, when I had to ask my daughter, who's that? A adorable singer there on the show. She said, mom, that's Bruno Mars. I said, okay. <laughs> you know, one of the things though that, that doesn't change is the need for accessibility for children who, as you said, have infinite promise, infinite potential. And our job is to see that and affirm it. And one of the concerns that many people have had is that 
this Sesame Street or, or, or programming for children may be becoming less accessible for children of lower income households or who do not have access to the same kind of streaming subscription services as others. How do we navigate that to continue to pour into the children who need our support while making sure that we aren't sort of complicating things even more in terms of how they get access to content? As you know, my show, most of my work has been on PBS, which is public public television that anybody can watch without having to pay a fee. And, but I do think that you're right, that the, the generation gap is exacerbated by access, by kids who have to do their homework by the McDonald's, because that's where they get this a good signal. And people have to to understand that, that it has to do with access of devices or having a good internet service. And let's not forget that television was the first device. I mean, it is a device. It was used for uh, promulgating Sesame Street. And uh, it's important to get the proper devices in kids' hands. That was Sesame Street actor, producer, and author, Sonia Manzano. I spoke with her earlier this year. Her book, Coming Up Cuban, Rising Past Castro's Shadow, was released last month. When we return, more from our conversation with Manzano. We'll hear about what inspired her to write a novel and her connection with the late actor, Emilio Delgado. He passed away this past March. And later, how TV producers and psychologists work together to create programming for kids. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, we're focused on how educational children's programming has evolved. Coming up, we talk to a UMass psychologist who's consulted on some of the biggest kid shows of the last 50 years. But now, ahead of Hispanic Heritage Month, we listen back to a conversation with actor and producer Sonia Manzano. She's best known for her work as Maria on Sesame Street. Maria lived on Sesame Street for 40 years, first on her own and later with her husband and fix-it shop owner, Luis. Luis was played by the late Emilio Delgado. 
Delgado joined the cast the same year as Sonia, and here he is in 1972, reflecting on its first show with public broadcasting station KERA. Luis on Sesame Street is the, uh, is the only Chicano <laughs> on Sesame Street in New York City. What is he trying to say? I think what, what, uh, what Luis tries to say on, on, on the show, or you know, the, the, the concept of Luis, is that um, uh, well, you know, Sesame Street up to now has been uh, mostly directed toward, um, toward the, the black child or, or the, uh, the, the white child, you know, the disadvantaged child. And uh, up to now, the, the Chicano child is, you know, has been uh, non-existent as far as Sesame Street was concerned. When they talked to you about becoming uh, on Sesame Street and acting the part of Louise, did you feel like maybe you might get stereotyped? We're looking for somebody who looks like a Chicano, who sounds like a Chicano, yeah. and can throw in a few body of words yeah. uh, you know, aside <laughs> yeah. from the script. Chris, that's, that's the old thing that, that's happening. Everybody's hiring Mexicans now, right? But uh, the one thing I will say is that from my experiences as working, uh, uh, working as an actor in Hollywood is that uh, I, I don't play stereotype roles. <laughs> I refuse to accept stereotype roles. And I refuse a lot of jobs because of that, you know. Did you cover this when you were interviewed or were being considered for the job of the week? Definitely, yeah. They asked me, uh, you know, questions such as that, for instance, you know. Uh, and I just came out and told them, I said, uh, the Chicano is, is today, he's now, he's contemporary, he's a part of, you know, uh, lo que pasa, you know. That's not the way that, he, there's no Chicanos on TV being portrayed in those kind of roles, positive roles. Puros payasos and lackeys, you know, bandits, that's the only kind of roles that, that have been up to now on TV. Ya comienza la cosa a cambiar. It's starting to change right now, and it's in a token stage now. That was Sesame Street actor Emilio Delgado speaking to KERA in 1972. Delgado died in March. I asked Sonia Manzano about her relationship with Delgado and what she thinks about his legacy. Emilio Delgado had the rare capacity of being able to look at every person and every child as an individual. All of us tend to put people in groups. The girls I go out and have cocktails with, the kids that I'm going to put, Emilio in his heart actually saw each person as an individual. It was uncanny how he did that. Because of his passing, of course, we've all gotten together and chatted about him. And it is remarkable how most people have come to the same conclusion about him in different ways. He was a very spiritual person. He was doing Tai Chi and meditation way before uh, uh, people did it on a very popular popular basis. He was a very kind person. Uh, and he was a sincere person. And I think that's why kids loved him. I liked him so much. As you said, our chemistry was terrific. That's why people thought we were really married. Uh, It was a wonderful experience to be with him for so long. You know, one of the things that I learned from the tribute that you wrote about him was his life as an activist, who you said a little while ago, we all have power. So whether it's using a button or standing up for farm workers or or acting in a series, 
the ways in which being an activist was central to him, that he showed up in those spaces in those ways. What do you think we should know about that? Right. I, uh, I, uh, I always mention that when I first met him, I thought he was an activist for Cesar Chavez, because as, as a supporter of that movement, he would pin a boycott grapes button on everybody he came in contact with. So I assumed he was like a, you know, somebody who was going to join us at a seminar or something like that. I didn't realize he was hired as an actor and that was just his, his platform. And he, uh, and he was going to sort of use the little platform he had to make us aware of the challenges of Cesar Chavez and his organization. One of the things that has happened during this pandemic is that many of us are in this period of reflection, thinking about what we do, what we're called to do, the imprint that we want to have on this world, in our communities. And you have dedicated your entire career to that. Even as you said, thinking, I'm just an actress or I'm just a writer. When you think about your role as Maria, your role as a writer and executive producer, what's that legacy that you want people to say, this is the imprint of Sonia Manzano? I love stories. And I really think that the way for people to connect is to tell each other their stories. I love for example, Atlanta. I love that show because these are stories that I never heard before. I love Issa Rae's show because these are stories I've never heard before and I'm interested more and more. So the fact that I love stories, I know stories connect us and what I want my legacy to be, I want it to be this. I want people to say, Boy, when that show Alma's Way was aired right after that, there was a plethora of kid shows created by a lot of people of color and not just being on the scene as policemen, but actually being the creators of the shows. You know, if Issa Rae and Donald Glover are listening, we, we need Sonia Manzano on a project with the these people, because as you said, it's that generational, intergenerational, cross-generational experience that the context may change, but the heart does not. You mentioned loving stories and being a storyteller. And so I want to talk about this new book that you have coming out this year, Coming Up Cuban, Rising Past Castro's Shadow. It's a little different in terms of genre from some of the other books that you've written. Talk to us about this new book and why you decided this is where I want to go with my writing. Well, writing is uh, something that grabs you by the neck and you never know where it's going to take you. I am not Cuban. I let me state that right from the top. I'm New Yorican, Puerto Rican, but I'll try to tell you this quickly. I was at a cocktail, a book cocktail party and an, uh, a white American man said to me that he was raised in Cuba until he was five and his father had a chicken farm there and he had a dog. And they, then he said that Castro came into power and they had to sell the chicken farm and they had to get out of town and he had to leave his dog behind. And I said, oh, how sad. And he said, no worries. A year later, the dog showed up on a boat in Miami and we were reunited. Well, I thought that was hilarious. And I thought, I'll write a picture book saying that little story. My editor at Scholastic, Andrea Pinkney said, look around, maybe this is a book. 
Well, I started reading about the history and what happened to other children when Castro took over in 1959. And then I, I was down the rabbit hole of, of information. All of a sudden, I found out that 14,000 kids were sent to the mainland unaccompanied during the Pedro Pan program. I found out how families who were pro-revolution were suddenly disenchanted because things took a nasty turn right away and they fled. So families were disrupted. And then I thought about well, what happened to the kids who stayed, who couldn't leave. And I started investigating uh, the Brigadista movement, which was the literacy uh, aspect of Castro. Because I remember as a kid seeing him ranting and raving in the United Nations about uh, social issues that he was going to, and the militarization of, of uh, what kids were doing in schools with the Pionero program, all of that stuff got me very excited. So the book is uh, has four stories, two stories of kids who left and two stories of kids who had to stay. And I guess I'm saying social, social upheavals affect everyone. Look what's happening today with Ukraine. And this is what happened in Cuba was not what's happening in Ukraine. Obviously, I'm not comparing the two that way, but I'm saying that these social upheavals are sudden, families are separated, and kids are affected. One of the things that I really appreciate about your career is that it seems so deeply connected to who you are as a person. That even when you're playing a role or creating some creative piece, be it a book or a show, you bring who you are, that authentic self into telling those stories, but also the authenticity of other people that you come into contact with. What would be your message to other creators to think about that connection between the self and the art that we create and why it's been so important for you in your career? A very famous writer said, be yourself, everybody else is taken. <laughs> I mean, yourself is all you got. People say to me, oh, you overcame a terrible childhood to be so successful. I didn't overcome it. I embraced it. That was me. I never forgot it. If I was successful on Sesame Street, it's because I always remembered me as a little girl watching television, never seeing anybody like me. And I decided I'm going to be that. Uh, for some other kid out there. So it was all remembering me and using myself as the point of view of departure. That was actor and author Sonia Manzano, best known for her role as Maria on the long-running children's program, Sesame Street. I spoke with Manzano in April. After the break, psychologist Daniel Anderson talks about what he's learned from a long career consulting on children's television. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we revisit our conversation about how educational TV program has evolved over the years and it's influenced generations of young people from shows like Sesame Street to Blue's Clues. Our next guest was a foundational voice in bringing scientific research into the TV writing process. 
Daniel R. Anderson is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's former consultant for Nickelodeon and Sesame Workshop. Anderson helped in the production of countless kids shows like Bear in the Big Blue House, Gullah Gullah Island, and Dora the Explorer. When I spoke with Daniel in April, I asked him how he became interested in child development and programming. Well, first I got interested in children and television in an odd way. I was interested in the development of attention. And I got interested in that because an undergraduate student asked me, Professor Anderson, you lectured today that younger children have more difficulty sustaining attention than older children, and that younger children are more distractible than older children. How come my four-year-old brother can just sit and stare at Sesame Street, which seemed to violate both those ideas that a young child is distractible and has trouble sustaining attention? Well, since I was interested in the development of attention, I thought I should find out What was known about attention to television, uh, was that something special or or what? I quickly discovered, this is back in the 1970s, a long time ago, that nobody had been studying children's attention to television. And I had no way of honestly answering the uh, students' questions. So I began to study children's television. The more I learned, the more I knew what we had found was relevant to producing good television, producing television from which children could learn. Eventually, I got contacted by Sesame Workshop, and I also got contacted by Nickelodeon, and then later uh, Henson Productions and Disney, and, uh, and worked with all of them trying to produce television for preschool children that was educational and would really teach them. You have worked with the most iconic standouts in the field who have had an imprint on children's television, children's learning, now for generations to be able to see those changes. Let's talk about your early work with groups like Sesame Workshop and Nickelodeon. What is the role that you played in the development of the shows connected to those platforms? Well, originally first for the workshop, I helped them with research to do, and I studied, did a lot of uh, study on Sesame Street on how children watched it. And at that time, whether the newer programs were more successful than the older programs, in terms of whether the children paid attention at the right times and whether they were understanding the intended lessons. Through all that, my students and I learned really a great deal about children's viewing. So for example, we found that very young children had very short periods of attention to television They'd look at the TV and then go back and play with their toys for a little while and look at the TV and so on, so that their attention was very sporadic. But from studying in the homes, we set up cameras in families' homes and videotaped how the children watch television at home. We found that the older children were, the more attention they paid to television. So one-year-olds, for example, would pay very sporadic attention 
to the screen. Whereas by the time children were five and six years old, they were spending much more of their time looking at the TV. We speculated that this was because the older children understood more. And the question then was what drove attention? Things people at the time were saying, oh, it's the fast pace, sound effects, things like that, things that draw their attention to the TV. And that's what kept them watching. And a lot of producers at that time believed that too. But what we found was that the primary driver of attention was how much the children actually understood the program they were watching. The fundamental driver in whether children pay attention to television or not is how interested they are in the content, not so much the production value, the story, the the lesson, that kind of thing. And if they couldn't understand it, they would rapidly, their attention would be rapidly lost, regardless of how much music, sound effects, rapid pacing, and so on there were. So it was a fundamental insight that you couldn't get kids to watch a program just from the program's production features. You really had to have good writing that is age-directed, appropriate age-directed good writing for the kids and fundamentally good stories. Let's talk about those stories and the ways in which the stories help the children connect, but also helps children see themselves. And I think we, we sort of take for granted how important that was. You worked on a number of key shows, shows like Blue's Clues, Dora the Explorer, Gullah Gullah Island, all shows that showcase people and ideas and lives that were often missing from television. How important is it to show kids those diverse representations? How important is that in showing that diversity? Oh, it's very important. At the time I started working with Nick Jr., for example, commercial television had very few female characters and very few Black or Hispanic characters And so it was really dominated by male-oriented action cartoons, even when there weren't people that most of the cartoons featured animal characters or, uh, or robots or things of that sort. I argued very strongly to the Nick Jr. people that there was a total lack of human characters and especially families and families that a child could take seriously. So for example, with Gullah Gullah Island, I've argued very strongly that we needed a program that not only had characters that children didn't normally see on television at that time, but that what was really lacking in children's television then was father figures. So the, the, the really important part of Gullah Gullah Island, from my point of view, was a charismatic but loving father who really was a strong presence in the children's lives and the kind of person that a boy could model himself after. A lot of the learning that goes on in preschool years is social and emotional learning. 
as well as learning about self-control and things of that sort. But children and adults don't remember how they learned those. Things. They don't remember the learning that actually happened during the preschool years. So often they can't attribute it. Oh, I watched Gullah Gullah Island and that's why I'm a good father. But in fact, subtly and constantly, children are absorbing the values that they get from the stories that television provides them. Another show that I worked on where we modeled the main character to show good fathering was a show called Bear in the Big Blue House. Now, these were puppets, full-bodied puppets, and this was a show that was produced by Hanson, but appeared on Disney. And we modeled Bear, the main character, in part after my brother, who at that time had three young daughters. And I brought to the studio photographs of, uh, of my brother with his little girls. And he's, he's a big man and they were young children, but you could just see the kind of the strength, but love that he had with those young girls. And so in Bear in the Big Blue House, Bear is a very large, full-bodied puppet character looking like a very friendly bear, but the rest of the characters are small puppets representing animals who live in and visit his house. And I've had people, I had a, a construction worker one time tell me I was wearing a hat that had Bear in the Big Blue House on it. And he stopped me and said, you know, I watched that with my son and it really shows me how to be a good father with, with a little boy. And so one of those things that I'm actually quite proud of. You know, I'm listening to you recount your work in these shows and I'm smiling because although I was an adult when these shows were out, I remember watching them with my nieces and nephews. It does have this multi-generational ability to bring people together, to remind us of the experiences, those skills, those values that I think often we take for granted as adults, but we also lose sight of how children engage and play and learn and can teach us. What would you say are two of the, the most important skills or educational goals that we should think about in creating children's television? Well, first and foremost, we have, when it comes to young children, and now I'm talking about children roughly two to five years old. Children under two really shouldn't be watching television because they, by and large, don't understand it. It's not that it's necessarily bad for them, but it's not a great way for them to spend their time. And they're often distracted by the TV from fully engaging in play and interacting with family. Parents get distracted by television being on all the time as well. And so they don't speak to their children as well or intelligently or as caringly uh, as when the television is off. But after two, children begin to understand. And then the key thing is that the programs be made so that, the, that they are understandable. And I think there's no, no reason why a television program has to be purely entertainment oriented. 
because when it comes to young children, you can embed lessons in everything. So that as long as the writers are aware of a child's level, when they know how to speak to, to preschool children, and they understand things about issues of vocabulary or kinds of grammar that are difficult for children to grasp, like the passive tense, for example. And the uh, directors understand issues about editing. So one of the things that we did with Blue's Clues was to reduce the editing. There's really only, in a typical episode, perhaps two cuts. So all transitions between the stories, between the parts of the show, are continuous. And when there is a sudden transition, as for example, when the main character would jump into a storybook, the child would be told about it in advance that this was going to happen. They would see it happen. And then they, then the child was told what just happened. Now we're in the book and we're going to have our portion of the show that's in the book. So when you ease that extra cognitive burden of trying to process the visual information, then the children have much better understanding of the show. And if they have better understanding, they actually like the show more. And as the secrets to why Blue's Clues was such a success. It's been about a decade since you were actively involved in working on these shows and this content and, and this understanding. And in that time, we are going through a pandemic that has disrupted every aspect of our lives. And one of the outcomes is that we have more screen time, not just for children, but for all of us, for adults as well. As we look forward, are you concerned about that relationship between children and TV today? Or do you think there are things that we can draw on to ensure that we are using that to really help children grow and develop and not just casting it off as bad? Yeah, I'm actually very concerned. I think the research during the pandemic hasn't, most of it hasn't come out yet. But what has come out is that all the screen time that children are spending is not doing, is not good for them. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that after about two years of age, the maximum amount of screen time should be on the order of two hours, perhaps more for older elementary age and adolescent kids. But the reality is, is during the pandemic, kids are on the order of eight hours to 12 hours of screen time. And that's just simply too much. Here, here are the problems. First, most of what the kids are experiencing, other than screen time related to school, uh, most of what they're experiencing is entertainment programming. Now, for preschoolers, they, they don't use online or interactive media that much. They play some games, that kind of thing. And, and it is the case that for preschoolers, what's on television, particularly PBS, but also the commercial programs, a lot of it is educational and it's not so bad. But when there is a whole lot of it, 
it of necessity reduces interaction, meaningful interaction with peers and meaningful interaction with adults. And that's just simply not good. If parents are using the TV to keep their kids occupied while they're trying to work, it's understandable, it's not great for the kids. Having your parent ignore you a lot or being distracted a lot isn't good. I don't have any easy solutions for that because in in the reality of people's lives, they often have no choice. Parents have to, had to work at home. Kids couldn't go to daycare or preschool or uh, or school, and and it's it's a difficult thing to sort out. But nevertheless, parking a kid in front of the TV for hour after hour just isn't good. When it comes to elementary level kids not only is there less educational content available for them, but by the time kids are six or seven years old, they want to start watching content that's intended for adults. And that content is not educational by and large for preschoolers. Uh, And as their understanding and their interest in the world grows, They watch less and less child-oriented content and more and more adult-oriented content. The other part of it is that if a kid's parked in front of the screen, he or she is not getting exercise. And the other thing that it's not well known, but uh, is important, when people uh, are in front of the screen, especially television, they tend to eat. And just having a television on in the background means that people eat more, not because they're hungry, but just because they're not monitoring their internal bodily sensations. So the danger is obesity, lack of exercise, and there are issues related to sleep and vision. That was Daniel R. Anderson, Professor Emeritus of Psychology at UMass Amherst. He's former consultant for Nickelodeon and the Sesame Workshop. I spoke with him earlier this year. Disrupted is produced by Jay Carlisle Larson, Kevin Chang Barnum, and Katie Talarski. This episode was originally produced by James Scoble Wolf and Shekinah Collier. You can listen back to all of our episodes of Disrupted. Just find us wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.